0: The Talkin' Football podcast is brought to you in association with Luaf Press. Get 15% off all football titles with the code Talking Football. You can also use the code UK15 for free UK shipping on orders over £15, and International30 for outside the UK for sales over £30. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 59 of the Talking Football podcast. My name's Derek Clark and every week we try and bring you a first class interview with some of the biggest names involved in the game. This week I had the pleasure of chatting to recently retired goalkeeper Bobby Alejnik who's decided to swap his gloves for a career in computer programming no less. It's another refreshingly honest interview as Bobby chats about his Aston Villa regrets, coming of age at Falkirk, his Wembley triumph with Peterborough, the pressures of being a footballer on his personal life, and much more in between. So sit back and enjoy the latest episodes of the Talking Football podcast. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the the Talking Football podcast. I'm delighted to say we're joined this week by Bobby Olesnig. He's just uh, retired from football, of course. Bobby, thank
1: you very much for joining us. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: A really colourful career you've had in the game, Bobby, in the world of football. Um, We'll kick off all the way back. You were born in Vienna, of course, in 1986. Were you always playing football as as a youngster?
1: I I think as far as I can remember that's all I've been doing. I, I think I had a week's worth of sort of um, tennis camp just because my parents wanted me to try you know all sorts of sports but as far as I can remember yeah it's been football and that's partially down to my dad who's obviously been a who was a goalkeeper himself so I sort of naturally followed in his in his footsteps really.
0: Yeah I guess that's, that's
1: what I was going to lead on to Were you always wanting to be a, a goalkeeper. I think when you're sort of you know very young you don't really think about what it is you sort of just play because you love it and because you enjoy it and because all your mates do it and you sort of you know everyone at school does it and you sort of just join in and then I think it's sort of often down to the parents who say well he's actually really enjoying this you know maybe we should we should do a little bit more and and pursue this a little bit more and I think that's sort of what it's been I think when you're sort of you know three four five years old you don't really think too much you just want to have fun as as a child
0: yeah and I guess with your dad was was he pretty much your, your role model growing up, or did you have any other sort of goalkeepers that you aspire to be like
1: I think my dad was definitely somebody who i 've learned a lot of stuff from because he 's played at a fairly decent level in Poland, so he was sort of um you know playing in in sort of the the you know the equivalent of the championship so he 's always had you know older players coming down and, and and helping him along his career as well and so he was definitely the first sort of point of call if there was anything going on in games that we needed to go over but when you're sort of younger, you end up watching the Austrian league, and you know, it's always there's always one standout goalkeeper that you end up looking at. And at the time, I was a Rapid Vienna fan, and it was the goalkeeper then, it was in the national side who I ended up sort of really liking.
0: Yeah, and um, of course, you went to join Rapid as a, as a youngster. How did that come about? Did they send scouts to go and have a look at you as, as a wee boy?
1: It wasn't quite as elaborate as that, to be honest <laughs> with you. It's quite a weird setup because there was something as far as I remember, it's my dad's boss's son played for Rapid Vienna and sort of an under six they just said yeah we'll, we'll you know we'll take him on and have a little look and see what's what and that, that's sort of how he came about there's not really any you know, unfortunately there's no sort of fairy tale story it was sort of just through mates knowing somebody somewhere and sort of that's how I got in.
0: Yeah and of course you from there you went to, to Austria Vienna it was what was that like being in, in the youth system there?
1: I mean, that was um, a very new system, the way Austria-Vienna tried to structure it. They made it a lot more professional compared to sort of Rapid Vienna. Rapid Vienna tried it a little bit with sort of having a schooling system in the morning, and then you'd go and train with them. But Austria-Vienna sort of took it to another level. There was a huge investment from from a sort of a wealthy Austrian who said, you know what, we need to take football and bring it up a notch because it's been done in skiing. It's been done in so many other sports in Austria, but in football, for whatever reason, just never quite happened. So he sort of took it to another level, bought almost a whole complex um, at this school just outside of Vienna. And where we had fantastic facilities, sort of amazing training pitches, um, you know, lectures tied in around our training schedule and stuff. And, and that was really the opportunity for me to, you know, train twice a day instead of just the once a day that you had at Rapid Vienna. And it was just a whole nother experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And from there, of course, the move to, to Villa comes along. Um, how did all that, that happen there, Bobby?
1: That was um, a bit of a strange one, to be honest with you, because I was playing when you sort of in this setup at Austria Vienna. I was, I think we had 16 out of the 20 boys in the under 16, 17s, but were all from that same academy because it was sort of the best of the best in a country, sort of living together and, and, and training. And so you ended up having that, and we ended up playing internationals together. And one day I had an agent ring me, and he sort of said, you know, Aston Villa interested, and, and two or three other clubs. and being quite naive and and both my my dad and I were sort of quite naive with that with respect to that. So we sort of believed what he was saying, but you know, nothing ever came from it. He never really sort of followed through with it. So um one day my dad just said, look, why don't you just pick up the phone, ring them and see what happens? And you don't sort of realise the scale of some of the clubs that are over here compared to the clubs that are in Austria. In Austria there maybe three people who deal with the youth setter, whereas you know, over here, there's a complete different system. There's, there's complete sections and, and departments to to sort of um, deal with that. But we sort of didn't quite understand it. So we just picked up the phone and said, look, this is me. Um, we were broke English and sort of said, well, are you interested? And they sort of said, yeah, there's a flight for you. We'll we'll send you the details and, yeah, come over. And it was, yeah, the most bizarre thing, yeah.
0: And what was that like going over there and mixing with the, the sort of players that they had? Because they had a, a, a great array of talent there at the time, didn't they, Aston Villa?
1: I was, um, I mean, it's it's when you're playing in Austria, sort of everybody talks about you know playing in the UK. Yeah. I've had some mates leave to to go to Holland and Italy, but no one's ever really broken through to Austria, and I was sort of one of the very first ones. And that was sort of the main thing that we, you know, that, that as as a kid that you aspire to is to come to the UK. And you know, just being 16 and coming over over to the UK, it's just a dream come true to be honest with you. And then obviously. You then actually get to experience Premier League football. You get to experience the sort of the likes of Thomas Sorensen, you know, internationals from all different countries that, that you've seen on, on telly. It was just, yeah, an incredible experience, especially because in the UK, especially at Aston Villa, I was quite fortunate to be able to train with the first team. Yeah. Whereas in Austria, we sort of had separate sections where I was just outside of Vienna, whereas Austria Vienna was actually in, like they just train outside the stadium. So he never really had any contact with the first team.
0: Yeah. Did you, you mentioned there, Thomas Sorensen, did, you, did these sort of guys help you when you, were, when you were training with them and that sort of thing?
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, a lot of the credit has to go down to Eric Steele, who's, who's really taking me, you know, he was the guy that actually initially brought me over, he came to watch me, um, and he was the one that was really pushing for me to come over. And, um, you know, I was sort of fortunate at the time, because at Aston Villa, we had the first team training on the next, next pitch down, but the goalkeepers would generally train together. So you'd have the first team separate and the youth team separate. But keepers would generally warm up together, and then the first team would go off, and those keepers you sort of stay together. So, you know, even with, with goalkeepers like Boaz Myhill, Wayne Henderson, who they, they all had fantastic careers, and you know, a lot of it has to go down to Eric Steele. And obviously, growing up, being sort of 16 and and seeing those keepers who've had incredible careers, it's just yeah, it's, like it's it's not an experience that that you can replicate. And I think that doesn't happen often these days where you have the sort of the two, you know, the youth team training with the first team. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Was it, was it maybe a tinge of disappointment that you never made the the breakthrough there and, and established yourself? Is it the Villa number one, or is it just the opportunity wasn't really there for you?
1: I think I look back at that, and, and at the time, I probably would have agreed with you um, with regards to that. But I think I never made the most of it, mm. um, to be honest with you. It was sort of, it's only when you when I realised when I left Aston Villa, it was only then that I realised what opportunity I actually had. Because I just thought the UK every club was the same. Every club was as, as you know, had had this, you know, same size, you know, crowds and and what have you. And and, and that wasn't obviously the case. And sort of looking back, that's probably one of the things that I look back and I think, Do you know what, I could have done more. I could have done a little bit, you know, concentrate a little bit more. I just it was just not quite. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to describe it. But as I said, I look back and I really look at this as a as a missed opportunity because there was a real chance to make it. There was an injury to Thomas Sorensen and Stuart Taylor. In you in, know, in, in, in in I think it was two or three weeks, we ended up being on the bench for about 20 games in, in the first team, and it just it just never clicked. it just never really made sense. and I think I, I put that down to sort of the inexperience of what it's actually t- entails to become a first team player or you know make it at the top. and I think that's definitely looking back its it's something that not, I'm not going to say I regret because I've learned a lot from it, but it just sort of showed me that that you know it takes a lot more than just turning up to training to 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 make it. Yeah,
0: the 2006 as well, you, you represented the, the Austrian, is it under 21s you played for? Um,
1: yeah. I mean, that must be a proud moment for you and like your family and stuff like that. Yeah, under 21s, I mean, we we had a very successful sort of age group, really, sort of, you know, up to my age and a couple of years below. We've had a very successful, they've always managed to do well in, in sort of the European tournament. So we sort of fancied our chances and, and then the opportunity came along to obviously, uh, you know, Possibly qualify for the European Championships, and that's something that you won't be lost in the in the playoff game. Or I can't quite remember what it was, but I think it's something like the playoff game that we lost to to, to Finland. But yeah, it's just an incredible experience to to amass that many cup caps and just just play for your country because you end up flying all over and you end up you know playing it. It's just a different, completely different environment, completely different experience. Yeah,
0: definitely. Of course, a, a little spell, loan spell at Lincoln, but then you came up north to join them, um, Falkirk. How, how did that move come about?
1: I think as as it's 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 not unfortunately as glamorous as as sort of a <laughs> lot of the moves that you see on TV. So sort of, I remember sitting in my bed one day and and the phone just rang and my agent just said, "Look, um, you know, pack your bags. You're sort of going to Scotland on trial for a week." And that's literally how sometimes these things come about. And because my agent knew somebody who you know played yeah. up in Scotland, and he made a phone call to the manager or whatever. It just that's sometimes how it comes about. And yeah. That that that's what it was, and yeah, as I said, I'd like to have some glamorous stories, some amazing sort of, you know, it was on all over Sky Sports or anything like that. It's not that; it's just yeah. My agent rang me and said, "Pack your bags, you're going up for a week's trial." I was like, "All right, then, yeah, sounds good."
0: And of course, the manager you mentioned there—what a character he is, um, John Hughes. Um, what, what what was what was he like to play under? Did, did you manage to understand him when when you first came up?
1: Do you know what? I surprisingly did. A lot of people say to me, I don't know how you understand them, but I I don't know what it was, but I think I had two Scottish coaches, uh, Tony McAndrew and Kevin McDonald at Villa. So they were quite broad sort of, you know, Scottish accents. And and I think I just got used to them. And then that made, you know, transition a little bit easier, I guess. And yeah, the constant exposure. I'll tell you who was the worst. Darren Barr was the worst. He was (laughs) by far the worst person to understand. Like, yeah, really struggle. And even every now and again, now I sort of listen to him, and I'm like, oh, this is, yeah this, this is worse than John Hughes <laughs> um, of course, a great uh, set of lads here at the time of uh, at
0: Falkirk, there were some great players. I mean, I've interviewed a, a few guys that played with Russell Lattiby before, and they say he's the best player he's ever played with, and he used to just he could play with his slippers on he was that good how, how good was he? I mean, yeah, I
1: think he just said it there. We, I remember he was taking corners in, swinging in corners from both sides. And you sort of, you don't do that if you're an average player, you know, you, yeah. you don't take in swinging corners from both sides. And that, that was one of the things I realised. And he just said, well, my groin was sore one day. So I just took, you know, started taking left foot of corners and, yeah he would never move he would never sweat but then somehow he'd find space somehow he'd just be in the right position and then all of a sudden he'd just something explosive he'd score and then yeah he'd be blowing for the next 5 minutes but you know up until that point he was just incredible yeah it's just as i said there's this not there's not really much you can say i mean everyone's quality and it sort of speaks for itself really his record his 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 career yeah, absolutely. Of
0: course, when you went up, um, Tim Cruel was there on, on loan as well. Um, what was he like, Bobby, to, to sort of share a dressing room with and, and compete with? Did you did you know back then that, that he was
1: something special? I think, at the time. I sort of felt like, oh, he's my age. He comes from a similar sort of background where, you know, Premier League and, and, and so on. And I thought, oh, do you know what? There'll be a fair competition. But then when he turned up, it, it wasn't really a competition. It was like a 30-year-old in an 18 year old's body with the amount of... He looked like he'd played thousands of games. That's what it felt like when, when, when I was watching him in games. I just... It was such a... Even though he was, we were similar age, he's actually, I think, a bit younger than me. I was watching him and it felt like I was learning from somebody who's just really experienced. The, amount, the the things he did, I remember just sitting on the bench and just, just honing in on him in training. Like I, I'd ignore the rest of the game and I'd literally just watch him in games because he was just so, so interesting and so amazing to watch. And yeah, I definitely learned so much despite sort of being similar age. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: how, how did you find the the Scottish Premier League? Because of course you, you're playing against um, the top flight in Scotland and and, and really starting to make your your career and your breakthrough. So how did
1: you, how did you find that? I absolutely loved it, to be honest with you. It was one of the best sort of experiences and it's helped me massively in in my career just because it went from sort of playing reserve team football and sort of in and around the first team to actually being in the first team and actually being in competitions and actually, you know, the media presence and things like that, that was just a massive difference compared to, you know, reserve team football. Yeah, you, you play against good players in reserves, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's that pressure on because in reserves you play, you know, if you're 5-0 down, the manager still wants you to play out from the back and that doesn't happen in, in, in first team football. And that was probably one of the biggest adjustment periods I had because I was still trying to do the right thing in quotation marks, but it was in the end about, you know, getting three points and about, paying your mortgage or paying your rent or whatever at the end of the day whereas that you know in reserve team football that's not not often the case and yeah it was just a massive massive learning curve and you know just just a huge experience and obviously as I said we've been involved in cup competitions where you actually have a chance of winning something you know cup finals and and people's careers on 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 the line essentially it was yeah helped me tremendously and obviously the playing at big stadiums as well it 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 obviously helps massively as well to, to develop when you're a young player.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, you, play, playing against the old firm must be must be a highlight for you going to these uh, Ibrooks and, and Parkhead and what have you. And being being the Falkirk goalie, you'd have been busy uh, uh, pretty much all the time.
1: Yeah, I, I think we had a pretty successful season the first year. You know, we, we ended up fin- just finishing outside the um, Seven, yeah. the playoffs, if I remember. So it was yeah, it was, um, it was it was a shame we never made it. But yeah, as you, as you said, like the, we were always busy, and that that sort of another thing that I really enjoyed. It was just always, you know. You have to sort of stay alert and 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 yeah, just a just a massive massive learning curve. And I think the worst stadium I played at, to be fair, as much as all the other two are, are huge stadiums, Hearts is 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 probably the tightest stadium that you can brand. I mean, I remember taking a ball, you know, because it's rolled over the line and you've got fans literally as close they can touch you. And it's yeah, especially beyond a goal. I and mean, it's it, that was a great atmosphere as well there down there.
0: Yeah. Did you ever get any sort of, uh, you see some goalkeepers now, especially last season, getting a lot of abuse and what have you. Did you ever sort of get that? Did, were you ever aware of that when you were playing?
1: I don't think you would pay attention, to be honest with you. You sort of hear it when maybe the game stops. But I think during a game, you don't don't really hear it. And, you know, you try and sort of, I don't know, play, you know, do the simple things right so the fans can't jump on your back because then it sort of becomes obvious point of shouting at him because he does the right thing anyway. It's only when you sort of do, you know, you miss hit a kick or, or make a bad pass or whatever, that's when they start jumping on you. So I think as long as you can sort of do the basics well, then then they sort of keep off your back. Yeah, definitely.
0: Another player that I was seeing was there when you were there, of course, it was tragic what happened to him a few years ago, Chris Mitchell. Did, what, what was he like when, when you shared a dressing room with him, Bobby? I guess he just sort of Nobody really knew what sort of demons he was fighting back
1: then. 100%. I mean, it's, um, you know, when I heard the news, I was obviously devastated that, uh, that you, know, he, he, you know, what happened. It was just, yeah, it's just such a tragic, tragic story. And, you know, on that point, there's so many footballers who have sort of similar things to deal with. You, you, you know, people like Billy Key down here, there's so many players, more and more are starting to come out. And, you know, in my opinion, more needs to be done on that. You know, whatever way to support players, you have to, as, as clubs, I think it's their responsibility to support players because players are becoming more and more disposable. And, and, and I just think that, you know, tragic accidents like that will go, just go up and up and up. And eventually, unfortunately, it'll just be like a statistic rather than a, a, a do you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. at the minute, it's quite an individual thing. Whereas in the future, there there'll probably more cases. And, and, you know, I think clubs really need to do more to sort of support players in that respect because it's just such a... You know, it's such a taboo st- subject in football as well because you, you, you're supposed to be seen as a man and, and you know, all that stuff. But but that's not unfortunate reality, especially at the sort of the lower end of the of the scale where players don't earn the fortunes that, you know, some of the top players earn. And it's just, yeah. But Chris was a fantastic player. I mean, he was, you know, I've got one memory of him, which somebody actually captured on film. And that we were sort of just training at finished and we were practicing free kicks. It was him, Scott Arfield and a couple of other lads. And, and Chris scored the best free kick I've ever conceded against me. But I was joking around, sort of jumping on one leg, sort of covering my face, that he's never going to score. And he just whips his ball into the top corner. Everybody just sort of stopped. And on video, you can just see him running around with his top over his head and just celebrating. And it was just, yeah, that's the one memory I've got from him. And whenever I think back to it, it's just such a, yeah, it, it puts a smile on my face. But obviously, at the same time, you know, it reminds me of of, of what happened to him.
0: Yeah. As a goalkeeper, you, meant, the way you said that there, is, it's tough sometimes mentally to deal with when you're sitting on the sidelines and, and you're not playing, it must be you must be need to be sort of strong mentally to sort of deal with that and, and know that to be called up at any sort of point in time, you need to be ready.
1: I think as a keeper, you tend to um, maybe prepare a bit differently to to outfield players because as as an outfield player, you can sort of. you know I'm not going to play today or the manager's pulled me and says look just you know just sit this one out have a rest as a keeper I think you always you you warm up and if you watch keepers you warm up the same way as the one that's playing there's never really any difference in the warm-up whereas players you'll see sort of the starting 11 do their bit and then you see the sub sort of just playing a bit of keep ball and so on and I think that's maybe where the difference is between keepers so so when I go and sit on the bench as much as I'm not playing physically i'm i'm actively playing a game. i'm watching a game and i'm watching you know what what's our keeper doing what's the next keeper doing you know is he getting injured is there is there anything going on and i think that's very much sort of um as, as a keeper you just develop that mindset because i mean i, I can tell you countless games what keep, what the keepers have done but i couldn't tell you anything about the game in between i couldn't tell you anything from sort of the back four to the other back four anything in between That no, no interest generally i generally just look at what what the keepers are doing and that was that was sort of one of the things as. As keepers, and when you speak to other keepers, they say the same thing. They they sort of they don't just sit there and sort of twiddle their thumbs. It's generally you know to to, to make sure that they're alert uh, you know and ready to go at, at any moment really.
0: Yeah, uh, you mentioned earlier Scott Arfield. Of course, there was a moment that yeah, I know you were embarrassed afterwards when you sort of had a set two with him at, at Aberdeen. Um, what what was what was that like at, at, at the time, Bobby? I guess it's just one of those where it's just the heat of the moment, and you're both desperate to win, and are just having a go at each other.
1: I think it. um it's sort of not like I, I wasn't trying to invoke the reaction that ended up becoming that, that ended up happening. I wasn't trying to invoke that reaction. It was just one of those. I was a bit annoyed that he didn't do what I asked him to do in the war because he was in a two I remember the exact situation. He was in a two man wall and I said, Look, Scotty, go right. Yeah. He did not and the ball got played through where he was. And I said, Look, if I tell you something, you know, I need you to do what, what I'm what I'm asking you to do, sort of thing. And I think because he thought I was gonna come at him and that's sort of why it all happened, I just you know, wanted to get, you know, just tell him what I thought at the time, and, and, and that was it. And unfortunately, it turned into a, a horrible situation. And sort of, you look back and you think, Oh, what was I thinking? What was I doing? And, you know, to provide Did your dad see it? I mean, what, what
0: did he see? Things
1: like that. Sorry, say that again, please. Did,
0: did your dad see it? Did, did, did he manage to see it? Did he sort of have a word? No,
1: he didn't see it. I, I sort of told him, and yeah, we, it was just one of those. It, it happens. And as keepers, what ends up happening is that that's always been my point of view. See if you concede. The goal, nobody's going to say, Oh, why didn't the wall stand in the right spot? It's always going to come down to the keeper. It'll always be, Why did the keeper not move the wall to the side? And you're like, Well, how are you supposed to do that when you're 20 yards, 25 yards away? So sometimes, you know, you'll see keepers getting frustrated because of that because players think, Oh, it's not important to stand in the right spot or, or, or not, not important to move over there. But whereas to us, it's massively important because it, it end up, we end up conceding and that looks bad on us. And yeah, so, so that's sort of maybe why keepers see these situations slightly differently to our players. Yeah.
0: Of course, at Falkirk, you'd, um, you'd appear in the Scottish Cup final when you were there. Of course, in in two thousand and nine, you were on the bench that day. But in terms of the the build up and the excitement around the town, what what was that like at, at the time, Bobby?
1: I think that was sort of the, the the thing I mentioned at the beginning, where it's just competitions like this where you don't really you know you don't really think about this when you're playing reserve team football, and you know at Aston Villa, it's it's once you once you come into that environment because we knew Rangers obviously were in Europe already, so if, you know, we were in Europe as, as well automatically because of the way that the season finished and that, you know, it's a massive experience and and that's something that you want as a player, that you want to be involved in foreign competitions, you want to be involved in, you know, playing against other teams and, and obviously the cup final just adds to that sort of experience because you're, you're in a massive stadium against a, you know, team that's, it's going to be on telly, it's, it's, it's obviously Rangers are a fantastic team at the time and yeah, it was, just, it was just an amazing experience. Even though I wasn't playing, it was still a, a great experience to to take part in and, and sort of to, to just sit on the bench and just take it all in, really, because you know what happens in these cup finals It's usually a hot day and, you yeah. know, it's just, it's just one of those games. And, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. And to be honest, we were looking back, we probably could have won the game. I think Carl Finnegan hit the post at one stage. So, yeah, it wasn't as, as, as sort of as obvious as you'd think, maybe. And the goal
0: by natural Nova, I mean, it's a terrific goal, but do you think you could have, you could have saved that one?
1: <laughs> I'm gonna say yeah, well, <laughs> no. but no. I mean, I mean, I know Danny was a you know excellent keeper, and and you know he, he, I think if I look if I think back the week before we actually stayed up because of, of an incredible save that he made against Inverness um, I think we won the game one or two nil, and I, I, I remember one nil he he made a really cut back in just to his right, and you remember just tipped it around the post, and it was sort of the save that 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 allowed us to stay up. And yeah, it was just Danny was obviously a great goalkeeper, and you know deservedly played really at the time.
0: Yeah, you mentioned they played in Europe. Of course, you, you'd go out to uh, Vados at the time. It was, uh, was that maybe a, a wee bit of a disappointment that you couldn't progress a wee bit further in in that competition?
1: I think so. I think when you sort of look at the. You know the, the the competition, who you're playing against at the time. You know, I know they're involved in the Swiss League, but you're sort of thinking, Do you know what? It's 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 a chance for us to, to 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 go ahead. And and again, it was just to me. I look back and I just look at it as a massive experience. You know, learning experience, and it's it's another sort of tick on 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 the list of of career goals of of playing in Europe because I've done it with with Austria under 21s, but I never really had the chance to say, Do you know what? I played in Europe. I played in a cup competition, and you know, it was a shame. Obviously, we we, we couldn't progress, and you know, we we took a great you know. Sort of, we were in a great position to going into the Verdu's game, and I just thought the away leg, and I just thought we we possibly could have done it, but obviously wasn't meant to be. But just overall, is is an amazing experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, you played over 100 games for Falkirk, yeah, Bobby, but you left in 2011, of course, to join Torquay. Was that did you just want a, a change, a change of scenery there, or were you sad to leave the club at the time?
1: I think I had a really good time at Talkie, um, At Falkirk, sorry. I really enjoyed it. It was, you know, the fantastic facilities up at Sterling University and, you know, we were able to use their facilities and it was, you know, rivaling some of the championship clubs, um, some of the facilities. So it was, yeah, it was, it was an excellent place to be. And I, to be honest with you, again, I can't really tell you how the move came about because I just remember my contract had run out and I, and they, and I said to um, Stephen Presley at the time, says, look, can I come in and train? And he said, yeah, absolutely. No problem at all. So I just, came in and, and kept fitting and you know one day my agent rang me very similar story sort of the same agent and he said look um Torquay are interested there's um there's a flight going out of Edinburgh I think you know go down do the medical and come back and that was again it's 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 as bizarre as it as it sounds but that's that's sort of the truth that's how these things come about yeah
0: and you're the sort of you the good time there I mean you said the, the clean sheet record and all that at Torquay and um was it a happy time when you went down there
1: it was, a, it was a time that I look back on and I, and I wish I'd repeated the, the things that I did off the pitch more than I did sort of throughout my career because I didn't realise how much at the time, how hard we worked in training. Um, a lot of it after, after, you know has to go down to the goalkeeping coach, Kenny Vasey, because h- him and I just worked, like I've never worked that hard and that then paid off on the pitch because a lot of the saves, a lot of the stuff that we did in in, in games came from the amount of training that we've done. And we would finish training, we'd have lunch, and then we'd carry on the goalkeepers a generally stay out for another hour or two after that and that's probably the hardest I've ever worked and and that's sort of you know that's maybe one of the regrets that I wish I'd worked as hard as I did then throughout my whole career because i I believe that it would have you know turned out differently, and I would have maybe not you know be sitting here talking to you now. about about <laughs>
0: Of course, you went to join uh, Peterborough um, the year after, and uh, you're playing under Darren Ferguson. It was a really good Peterborough uh, uh, side at that time. Bobby, what what was Darren Ferguson like as a a coach? I
1: mean, he was—you know—his record speaks for itself, really. The—you know—the the the way he plays football, and obviously having—you know—such an incredible mentor as well. You can just see that—you know—he does—he does does things his own way, but at the same time, I know he's got—you know—his dad obviously to bounce ideas off and. I remember, I think we lost to Millwall. I can't remember what, I think it was like 5-0 or something. 5-2. So it, it was a terrible game and, and he came in the next day and he never, ever mentioned his dad. And that was the one time he said, my dad even watched this and said, I'm not going to repeat what he said, but he sort of, he was very disappointed in, in our performance. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was just, uh, uh, there's, there's so many things that, that you can tell how why a manager has success and he did so many of those things, right? So yeah, it's, it was yeah. just a... Everything just just worked really well together. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, the twenty fourteen season is, of course, a, a memorable one for, for you and and Peterborough at the time. How was that one of your best seasons? Would you say, um, as, as, on a personal level?
1: See, I'd like to think so because of the sort of yes, on on the one hand, because of the the clean sheets and and everything that sort of where, where we finished. But on the other hand, I'd probably say, um. Probably Torquay, but then maybe because Torquay had a lot more to do in a, in a, in a, you know, in 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 games, just because of the nature of the of the division at the time, it was just you know had a lot more to do, and we, we weren't really expected to be going up, and you know everybody sort of played their part, whereas we almost underachieved in the 2014 season with Peterborough because we never we should have gone back up, you know, if you look at the points, Sally, we should have probably never got relegated because if you 56 points to get relegated was incredible at the time, and um you know teams now go down with 45 46 points so we would have been mid-table but you know there's no sort of no point in in, in looking back like that but I, I think from on a personal level yeah it was an enjoyable season we, we we had great achievements obviously playing at Wembley is a is a dream come true yeah. and um you know winning as well but at the same time I think in terms of as a, as a team we we sit we definitely underachieved that year just because we we should have got promoted we should have you know, I'm not going to say we should have walked the league, but you know, you look at the squad we've got, where we had players who ended up playing in the Premier League. We should have easily done a lot better than than we did that year.
0: Yeah, but before we touch on the the final, Bobby, you mentioned the other players. I mean, great players. Grant McCann was was there, of course. Um, yeah. What 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 was he like to play alongside? And um, I mean, I watched his Hull City team in midweek lose to Wigan by eight goals to nil. I guess you just you just feel for a guy. You, watching his team crumble like that, don't you?
1: I think so. I think, I mean, the, the thing is with Grant, he's a very, um, he was a very honest and, and he did what was asked of him. And I think that's why he's played at the level he has and, and that's why he's had the careers had because he's just, a you, you ask him to do something and, you know, 45 out of 46 games, he'll do exactly what you ask him to do. And he's that kind of a consistent player. And um, he wasn't the most vocal. He wasn't the the, the, the type that sort of screams and shouts when I played with him. He would just you ask him to put a free kick in, he would put it right on the money. You ask him to you know put, take the penalty, and you will score the penalty. And he was that type of player. Every now and again, he'd say something, but generally he would just sit there quietly. And you know, he even at at, at um, towards the end of his career, when when I played with him, he said the manager said something to him. He said. You know, Grant, what do you think? And Grant said, "I don't think I've I I, feel, I don't feel I can say anything because I've had a really poor game." And that was his sort of that's how much you know people respected him. And the manager said, "All right, I understand that." But, you know, and that's the sort of that's a, that type of player Grant was. And yeah, really, really enjoyed playing with him. And you know, goes for all the other players that were there, George Boyd and you know Lee Tomlin. Dwight Gale, Britt Asombalonga, I mean, that's just a you know, handful of players that you can mention from that, yeah.
0: from that team. Talking about uh, Asombalonga, how, how, how good was he then? Did you sort of know he was going to go on into uh, bigger and better
1: things? Oh, yeah, he was, yeah. As, as soon as he walked through the door, you knew he was going to be you know up there because the goals he scored, the, the, some of the finishing, I mean, he was up there with, with George Boyd with, with regards to finishing. I mean, George Boyd was probably... I remember the balls going in the back of the net and I wasn't even set, I was still moving and the ball was in the back of the net. I thought, how has he done that? And Britt was pretty much behind him to, to be doing those things because there was no backlift on some of his finishes. He was so clever on getting penalties, taking penalties, just ruthless and always right place, right time. I and mean, yeah, 100% you knew he was going to be you know, the right player. I think that shows the, the quality of the manager to be able to spot players like that and sign them and, 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 and help them you know, onwards with, 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 to have an incredible career, really. Yeah,
0: now, Talking about the final then at Wembley, beating um, Jesse Field of course, what was that like walking out and taking part in, a, in a, an occasion like that, Bobby? Are you, are you able to take it all in?
1: No, it's the one day I can't remember. its it, I know it sounds bizarre but it's just one of the few days in my career that you sort of can't remember and that's sort of the contrast to the Hamden final where at Hamden at least you can sit and, and take it all in and see all what, what that's going on. I think you know, as much as it's the sort of the Johnson's paint trophy at the time and, and it's sort of, you know, it's not an FA Cup final or anything. I think playing at Wembley, you end up not wanting, you want to win, I think, when you go down. I think, I mean, obviously you want to win, but at the same time, it, it, it's it's you, you want to do well when you go down. You want to have a memorable experience in the sense that you don't look back and think that was my only chance at Wembley and I didn't, you know, take advantage of it. And I think that was the key thing at the time that, that you're just so focused. You want to stick to your routine and you don't want to get sidetracked with, oh, it's Wembley. You just think it's another game. It's another game you want to win. And, and and I think that was it. And, you know, on the one hand, looking back, I wish I'd taken it in more. But on the other hand, if I had taken it in more, would I have not concentrated? And th- we might not have won the game. And, you know, to walk up them steps and, and pick up that trophy is is, you know, Everybody should experience it, as, you know, if, in their football career. If they don't achieve anything else, it's to, just to walk up those steps and, and lift the trophy is just an incredible feeling. Yeah, was
0: it a, a bit of a party after after that game?
1: Yeah, I think we had a midweek game on Wednesday, so sort of, you know, kept the the shackles on a little bit. But yeah, there was definitely some some um, entertainment afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um
0: were you disappointed in the end to to, to leave the club when, when the time came to um, to leave, Bobby? Because you had such a, a, a successful time there.
1: I think, yeah, because of you know the the, the, the way the club was going and, and obviously with the owner and the players that were coming through the door and that sort of you know goes back to the twenty fourteen season where we just didn't quite manage to get promoted and I think that's had an impact on players financially because yeah. we were expected to go back up and, and and obviously when you're in the championship the finances are different. And I think that players end up being sort of, I'm not going to say forced out the door, but finances then dictate whether players stay, you know, come, come or go, or stay, or, or what happens. And 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 that, that, unfortunately, you know, because we just didn't get promoted, that ends up having a knock-on effect on, on on some of the players at the club. And unfortunately, I had to, you know, find find different clubs, uh, you know, that season.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you. You mentioned when you were mentioning Grant McCann there. Was there any players, any sort of defenders, I'd imagine that imagine that really got on your nerves that they wouldn't do what you what you asked them to do?
1: All of them throughout my whole career. Defenders never listen to me, but but that's just the nature of the game. Defenders never listen to keepers, and keepers never listen to to, to defenders. So it always ends up being. I mean, there's so many players. I can tell you that that you tell them one thing, and they're like, mm, they give you the thumbs up, or they don't even listen, but they end up doing their own thing anyway. You know, and, and then they're the first ones to congratulate you when when, when you kept the clean sheet. So it's yeah. <laughs> Uh, Of
0: course, spells at uh, Scunthorpe, Exeter and and Mansfield, of course, where you team up with Steve Evans was the manager at the time, quite a character again. Um, What what was he like?
1: Steve Evans, um, I wanted to be part of Steve Evans because of the track record he had. You obviously hear stories, you play against him, you know he shouts and all this and and sort of there's a lot of, you know, um, he's, he's a very loud and vocal character, but it was actually really enjoyable to work under him because you knew where you stood and that was it. If you performed, you played. If you didn't, you weren't playing. And that was as simple as... You can't put any simpler than that. And I think partially that's why he's got the success because every player has to do their best week in, week out to ensure that they stay in the team. There's no sort of, oh, because he likes him a little bit more. He likes him a little bit more. He'll play. There's none of that. Players are playing who are the best at that moment in time, and if they had a poor game the week before, well, then another player steps in, and if he has a poor game, then somebody else steps in, and that was very much his his philosophy. And and what well, that doesn't always create the the best team spirit. At the same time, it creates success, and and you know that that's sort of something I wanted to be part of. I didn't know that that's how he worked at the time, but just with his track record, you always want to be somewhere where you know there'll be a, a where you'll have a successful season, just because the dressing rooms are just that much better because it's just happier and you know you, you sort of have a bit more freedom i guess
0: yeah definitely in terms of being a keeper bobby you hear a lot of goalkeepers have had on that have got sort of um wee little quirks that they do little superstitions and things like that were you one of those
1: um see i've it's a fine line between routine and superstition i think <laughs> so you end up doing the same thing and yeah. you know some people look at it routine some people call it um, superstition. I mean, was it Pepe I think in his book where he says he had to fill up his car and have a glass of wine on a Friday and fill up his car no matter how full his car was. So even if you put two litres in it, still do it. <laughs> and then it's like, well, is that a routine or is that a superstition? You know, if he plays well, what does it matter sort of thing? And yeah. I wasn't really somebody... Uh, I don't know how to put it because I'm going <laughs> to say no, but people who know me are probably going to say yes. So I, yeah, it's one of those. Yeah. I was very keen on, on making sure... I think if you find a way to, to be successful, you want to continue that. And yeah. I think that's the way players, that's where you see maybe players doing the same thing over and over because it gives them peace of mind in their head that they've done everything before the game to be ready for the game. And I think that's, that's maybe where there's sort of, there's a bit of a, you know, balance. But yeah, yeah. I, I did. At Falkirk probably was the worst when I used to park, try and park in the same parking spot. And if somebody parked in that different spot, then that sort of would annoy me. And yeah. <laughs> that any, tell, you know, mentioned
0: back. there when you played in Scotland that um, Tynecastle was a tough ground that you, you didn't enjoy going to. Was there any stadiums in England that you, you you didn't like?
1: To be honest, it's generally when when the stadium's empty, it's yeah. it's, it's probably like even even a small stadium, say like a Stevenage stadium, who is sort of a bit tighter. Even if that's packed, I prefer that than just sort of play at a massive stadium and it's completely empty and those are the grounds because it feels like a frenzy. It feels like a like a nothing game in a sense when you have a huge stadium and, and nobody's in it and you're sort of a bit like, well, what's going on? So so I'd rather have a, have a like even like Tynecastle, they, they don't have the biggest crowds but because of how tight it was, I've always enjoyed going out there because you always had something. There was always an atmosphere but yeah, it was a third of the crowd that, that you had at, you know, the, the, the other two stadiums, the massive ones. So, yeah.
0: Was it a bit awkward as well at, at Falkirk? Because of course they've got that Big open space as well. Was that a bit difficult to get used to?
1: I think it was in winters maybe particularly bad because you'd had the wind blowing through it. But I think the th- we we always had good fans at the at Falkirk. There was always plenty of fans, and it was always filled. And you know, obviously, when, when you had a bigger game, they, they they sort of erect this sort of um this this temp stand on the side, and then you had a bit of an atmosphere. I remember playing at Celtic against Celtic there, and you know they obviously got the whole side and, 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 and the stand behind the goal, and it was yeah, it was great atmosphere. And I think the the home fans were great as well at the time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And of course, it brings us up to the modern day. You decided um, to hang the, hang the gloves up, shall we say. What, what made you decide to, to, to call time on your career, Bobby?
1: Um, it's an interesting one because I think the current situation probably has a little bit to do with that. Because we sort of one day I remember being in training and then just being told there's a chance that the game's not going to go ahead. And we were meant to play crew at the weekend and, and we sort of got told, well, there's a chance that it might not go ahead and we sort of said oh, okay but well, we'll do our training anyway and then halfway through the training the, the, the call came and then you sort of think right okay so how long is this going to last for and then when you get home as the weeks go by and you, there's sort of no nothing happening at the end of that you sort of start to go do you know what what do i enjoy doing what is it that i actually want to get up and do whenever i wake up rather than force myself to do something and 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 constantly to be you know not stressed necessarily because that's that's probably the wrong word but sort of I wanted it to be a bit more relaxed about what it is that I enjoy doing in the mornings and um, or throughout the day and naturally sort of I had tendencies to go and sit in front of my you know at my desk and do work and try and find work to do and, and sort of be more and more involved in technology and then because there was so much time and I couldn't go anywhere and, and sort of had a load of time to think, it just became sort of more obvious to me that I thought, do you know what? I really enjoy doing this. Mm. And I really, you know, want to think about this potentially long-term and, and, and something that I can do afterwards. And there's now it felt like the, the right opportunity to do something like that where, i'm I'm out of the game for for you know by by not not by choice, and sort of thought, you know what maybe I can take these two or three months, start learning a bit, start educating, start making projects, start building stuff, and then maybe that will lead me into something which which you know it has, and I've already had you know an incredible amount of sort of phone calls with with, with people, but yeah, it was just sort of a I just wanted to let nature take its course, I know it sounds a bit sort of corny in that respect, but I just wanted to wake up and see because at times in football, you, you're bound to this lifestyle that you have every single, you know, day where, where you wake up and, and, and it's not just a, oh, I'll close my laptop at five and don't open it until nine o'clock the next day. You can't just go home and eat whatever you want. You have to go to bed at a, at a certain time. You, your weekends are usually gone. You know, your partner, I mean, it's, it, it, I'm not going to say it's cost my marriage, but it, it had an impact on my marriage at the time. And that's why I'm, you know, that, that, I'm divorced now. And that's sort of, as I said, it's never just down to one thing. But at the time in Exeter, I was... Uh, I was at home on my own Monday to Thursday, then my wife would come home Thursday night, but we would be leaving at 6am Friday morning and not back till Saturday night. So you see each other for one day and that's the day you want to relax, but then you should be spending time together and it just becomes this sort of balance. And, you know, that's, that was another thing. I just didn't want to be doing this again where I sort of have to sacrifice my private life for, you know, for, for, for football. And yeah. And because I enjoyed technology so much, it just became this sort of, Thing that I I want it to do, and and then I thought, you know what? It's just the right time to do. It. If that, now is a time as good as ever to, to to sort of do it. Yeah,
0: I think that it's interesting you mention that because I think especially fans, they just, they just look at footballers as being like robots and machines, aren't they? But they're they're human beings too. And like you say, especially down in England, that I mean, the games come thick and fast, so you don't really understand it. You don't you don't see loved ones a lot of the time, so it must be particularly tougher for, for
1: players hundred percent. And especially with the amount of clubs and, and the size of the league in terms of geographically, yeah. the size of it. I mean, you've got Stevenage, you've got um, Barrow now in the league, you've yeah. got Carlisle who are, you know, that's a big, big, big trek. And, you know, it doesn't always happen. But if you play at Exeter, that's a constant thing. I mean, a Manchester trips five, six hours. You, you look at teams, we played Hartlepool at the time. So we used to fly to some of these places because yeah. they're just how far and that just shows the, the amount of travelling they have to do. I mean, I was lucky with Mansfield because we're fairly central and the way the league was structured, there wasn't really too many big trips. So it was sort of, you know, you had your couple of exits, you know, Plymouth and Exeter, but other than that, there wasn't really that many trips that that, that we had to go on and it does have an impact. And look, it it is an enjoyable thing because you have so much spare time. But I also believe that there comes a time when you have to go, do you know what? What, what do I value more? Do I want to go through the same stuff over and over and over and, and keep making sort of the same mistakes in, in, in you know quotation marks where I focus more on my career instead of my private life? And and I think when you sort of get to my age, and I'm not particularly old in terms of football, you know, in a football oh, goalkeeper age, but you end up thinking, you know what, is this really what I want to be doing for the, for the rest of or, you know, for the foreseeable future? Or is there something else I'd rather be building and setting up? And as I said, because of the, the environment and the way, football it stopped i just thought you know what it's given me time to think about it
0: yeah absolutely and what sort of work are you doing now then bobby what, what you said you're into sort of t- the tech world can you fill us in what, what sort of stuff you're doing
1: hmm. technology is uh, I, I think it's quite a broad spectrum and but it's at the minute i'm trying to focus on so, so basically i've got into coding which i've been doing for a good while now so oh. So a lot of coding a lot of building apps making websites that sort of stuff that's something i'm very interested in i'm actually working with some of my previous coaches helping them develop um, an app for their business, for their business idea. So that's sort of that, something I'm into. And then you can probably see a laptop in the background here, but that's <laughs> something that I've been taking apart and putting back together and sort of swapping parts out. And that's sort of a bit of a hobby. It's just to buy a broken laptop, fix it, and then move it on and stuff or, or give it to somebody or fix someone else's broken laptop. But generally, it's, for me, it's coding. That's, that's sort of the big thing for me. It's just, it's just to making an apps and, and websites and things like that. Excellent. Fantastic.
0: Well, we wish you all the best going forward, Bobby. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I really appreciate appreciate it. Thank you very much for, for
1: coming on. No, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: was episode 59 of the talking fitball podcast with bobby Alechnik. i hope you enjoyed it as always remember if you want to listen to any previous shows you can catch them all on apple spotify soundcloud and podbean be sure to also check out the talking fitball website it's talkingfitball.co.uk where you'll find a whole load of great content as well if you're on twitter you can reach us at talking underscore fitball and we're on facebook too i hope you can join me again next time but until then keep safe Bye for now.